Hi, I'm Jerry Grant, and this is a series of programs we're calling Disc Jockey Confidential here on WVUD and WVUD HD1 in Newark, the voice of the University of Delaware. I'll be interviewing some of my fellow VUD jocks to find out what path they took to arrive here at the station. We'll discuss early experiences they had with music and radio and how those experiences inform their own show currently on WVUD. Today's guest is Carl Goldstein, host of Fire on the Mountain, heard Saturday mornings on WVUD for many, many years. Carl, welcome. Well, thank you, Jerry. Good to be here. Why don't you describe your show a little bit? The show is a combination of several different forms of traditional rural music, if you want to make it as as broad as you can. But I stick pretty much to traditional stuff. It's based mostly in traditional bluegrass. Bluegrass has taken several different paths uh, in the last few years that I haven't followed into jazz and other genres, but it's mostly bluegrass and then some of the predecessors of bluegrass, like old-time music. I throw in sometimes a little bit of uh, blues and a little bit of uh, gospel here and there, but it's basically uh, centered around uh, the traditional forms of Appalachian music. And um, how long have you been on the air? Well, I will celebrate my 40th anniversary come the third week in September. Very good. I started when I was six, Jerry. That's (laughs) All right. Well, tell me. So tell me where you did start. Where were you born and where you, where'd you grow up? Well, I was born in Chester, Pennsylvania, right across the line from, uh, from Wilmington and grew up there all the way through high school. We lived there. My folks moved to Delaware when I was in school. And that was the point where I, I moved down here. But uh, during those years, um, I think it's probably when I developed a kind of a, a path toward the music that I wound up doing, uh, totally unconsciously, I'm sure. There, there weren't many immediate places in Chester, like local radio stations and that kind of thing mm-hmm. that, that would have influenced me. But it was the general kind of thing that was going on in the 40s, for instance, sure. where a lot of stations like sold hours to people. They wanted to come in and do whatever they wanted to do, like a polka program or whatever. And then they, in turn, would sell the time, you know, without any kind of rigid format, as became the, the standard much later. So mm-hmm. it was kind of an interesting, varied thing to listen to if you just were to walk in and turn on a radio in that period of time. Then it's understood that you had a radio in your house. We did. Um, I think it was one of those table Foucault models. I'm not absolutely sure about that. We got a television when I was about 11 or 12. So all those early years, uh, we had a radio, listened to it regularly. I remember some stuff like Don McNeil's Breakfast Club and yeah. you know, Lone yeah. Ranger. And Was there live music in your house? Uh, no, uh, no one in my immediate family played, uh, played music. Uh, when I was in, I guess, from junior high on, even the end of elementary school, I uh, had a musical instrument and I took lessons. And various places I went, I hear other forms of music that kind of made some impression on me here and there. But as far as live music goes, that was pretty much it in my very early years. When you say you were listening to radio outside of the ethnic programming you're talking about, were you hearing the hits of the day? There was a radio version of uh, Hit Parade at one time, and I kind of remember that from week to week. A little bit of the pop stuff was there. I might jump ahead a little bit, but we can go back if, if we need to do that or we yeah, should. Sure. But, but what I remember most of all is that there was a, a local radio station, WPWA in Chester, that was on Edgemont Avenue, just outside of the Chester limits, actually. And we were only about four or five blocks from there. And um, I had already been exposed to, quote, country music and rock and roll at one time. And for some reason I knew, and I can't tell you the source, about Bill Haley. And Bill Haley did a weekly program on WPWA and the Saddleman, Bill Haley and the Saddleman. Right, right, right. And he would do it on Saturday afternoons and record it and it would play back on Sunday. And I remember, I, I don't know how old I was, I must have been 11, 10, maybe even 12, I'm not sure. 
I went uh, up to, to listen to them record that program, Bill Haley and the Saddlemen on WPWA. Wow. And that, that made a huge impression on me. And, and that was live performance? Yes, yes. They were in the studio recording it, and then they played it back on Sunday. And, that, and I think it, in two directions. One is he was doing essentially 40s country music, you know, accordion, which was very popular then, and uh, the rest of what would be a normal country band. But even then with some rock later, you might term rock and roll tinged uh, parts of the music as well. But I think not only did the music uh, make an impression on me, but radio made a, a bigger impression on me then because sure. there I was in a radio studio, you know. So I think that that was uh, that was an incident, I think, that had some lodged somewhere in my brain. Sure, for the better. So you went to grade school. Any musical education there? Uh, first thing I was, uh, <laughs> the first thing, uh, well, actually I played drums and I was in uh, sixth grade and I remembered that uh, I guess I was so bad on the drums that they made me carry the, the bass drum on a parade. And of course it was killing me. I remember that. So I was not enamored much of the drums. And then I was uh, forced in some way or other to, to, to start to learn accordion. In fact, I had a, a teacher who wrote a hit for the four aces who were from Chester. And uh, I, I, I did it. I didn't really like it that much, but I, but I did it. Uh, so yeah, those, those were several years of music instruction for me. And I'm not sure how much either of those things formed my taste in music but sure it, it makes me think we should add i should add this in just for the ages in case someone's listening 100 years from now or something but uh the four aces were an old-fashioned vocal group carryover from the 40s type uh, vocal groups right uh and bill haley was playing country music then but he would soon be in retrospect he's looked at as someone who started to add elements of rhythm and blues to his country music and spawned rock and roll there were several uh, philadelphia was a major player in the music industry then and chester in and of itself had a number of people including bill haley a little bit outside of chester booth's corner area but associated with chester a lot the four aces uh, the d john sisters uh, i can name two or three more uh how about uh, records were there records in your house uh, yes not a lot but they had some a uh, few big band things some pop things I do remember, and I'm not sure how, how this got there, but there was a, uh, you remember how the albums used to come in, in, a, in, a, in an album encasement, but with like paper slots. So if you got a full album, you would have like six or seven different things. Sure. There was mm-hmm. one of Bob Wills and the, play, and, and the Texas Playboys. I don't know wow. how that got into our house, but I remember loving it and playing it over and over again. Oh, well, there you go. There's a formative yeah, yeah. moment for sure. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Of course, these were 78s, of that's course. That's correct. Yes. I should say. Do you remember the first record you ever bought? I'm pretty sure it was Elvis. It was Sun, Good Rockin' Tonight. And I remember going out every, every time I could to get a new 45 of Elvis's. Mm-hmm. So the first few things I bought were Elvis. By the yeah. time you were buying, they were 45s? 45s, that's right. Okay, yes. good, good. Right. Interesting, okay. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, so, you, so then you go to high school, I assume? right. All right, in Chester, Chester area, or yes, I went to the I went to Smedley Junior High School, and then I went to the Pennsylvania Military Preparatory School, and my year was the last year that school existed. <laughs> you can take from that what you like. But it was it was actually part of PMC. I mean, just just to to quickly fill this in. Um, sure. Uh, in in at the time in Chester, there was the, the only place you could go was Chester High School, 
Uh, you couldn't then go to another school if you wanted to have a different take on your education. The only place you could go was to, to, that, to that school because it was part of Pennsylvania Military College. So mm-hmm. that's, where, that's where I wound up for three years. Um, and uh, in, in, in high school, uh, that's when I really started to listen to some forms of music that I, that I started to discover. And I would listen to uh, some clear channel stations of country music like uh, WOWO, Fort Wayne, Indiana, WSM in Nashville, mm-hmm. uh, a bunch of them. But I also was addicted to the, the rhythm and blues stuff from Philadelphia, WDAS, WHAT, sure. and listened to them all the time on my little transistor radio that I had gotten at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and what's interesting in retrospect is that I saw a, a, a great commonality in those two musics. I think over time, an awful lot of people were surprised when I would talk to them about that. But uh, the, the earthiness of it, you know, the, the fact that it was so close to real life yeah. and it had this mm-hmm. power and, and earthiness to it, both of them really attracted uh, me. And uh, oh, those years, I listened to a lot of old country music and, and rhythm and blues um, uh, and uh, I, I think I finally got some uh, some respect from the people who couldn't understand that years and years later when Ray Charles did Modern Sounds in Country and Western Music. Good, good. <laughs> and I would say, see, do you, do you understand, <laughs> now do you understand? You, know? you were way ahead of your time. Yeah, yeah way ahead. That's yeah, good. That's yeah. good. So you were buying 45s in those days in high school? Yes, correct. And um, were you playing any instrument in those days? Uh, no. No, I didn't really take up voluntarily my own instrument until I was in my first year of law school. Uh, I got a guitar. Uh, before that, it was only the things that I had mentioned that I was sure uh, involved in. Were you still hearing live music in high school? Where I mean, would you hear like a local band play or anything? Or I think only at dances, which I rarely went to, and mm-hmm. uh, once in a while I would hear that. Nothing that I heard there made any kind of impression on me. I'll, right, I right, right. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. Well, then we, we will go into college. Now, uh, we should add that you uh, have another life. Uh, you had another life, whatever. You were a retired Superior Court judge. Right. Uh, and so you eventually went to law school. So did you go to Penn for undergrad? I did. I went to Penn, uh, started in 19, let's see, 57, I guess, 56, and then went to uh, law school also at Penn. And this is uh, the University of Pennsylvania. That's correct, yeah. For the audience's sake. Um, So when you're an undergrad, um, are your tastes starting to change then? Um, I, I think they became a little more solidified, but I was still kind of listening to the same stuff. Um, I started to listen to a little more quote unquote folk stuff during that period. Um, uh, there were, um, you know, people like some of the, of the better, what you consider now to be commercial folk people like Peter, Paul and Mary, you know, there were the, the, the weavers. I don't think I really started to seriously find, um, bluegrass and older traditional uh, uh, country music, like old-time music, uh, music from the Appalachians and the mountains. Mm-hmm. till the very end of my college time and the beginning of law school, those years, um, and I think, as I mentioned earlier, what attracted me most to both the early country music as opposed to old-time and bluegrass and to blues was the earthiness of it. And when I discovered real early Appalachian music, that's, that's what it was because that stuff really came out of... Um, Southern exposure to, to, to blues, to, to Cajun, to all of that kind of stuff. So all the kind of stuff that I liked was embodied in that music mm-hmm. and in bluegrass as well. And once that hit my ears, it, it kind of exploded. 
I kept my interest in the other stuff, but I kind of started to veer more toward that. And that's kind of at the point a year or two later that I took up the guitar, mostly because of my interest in liking that music. Good, good. At, was there a radio station at Penn at that time? Yes, WXPN. XPN was there. That's right. Then. Were they? Does that satisfy any of your needs at the at the time? Or? It, it did. Uh, it was. It's a very, very much different station then than than now. Uh, the station then was somewhat like WVUD. It had a lot of experimental stuff. It had people who were interested in blues and old time music, et cetera, et cetera, and doing. And there was a program uh, on Saturday night. A couple people that I became friendly with over time did it called Sunnyside, and it played bluegrass and some old time and that kind of stuff as well, and that did. And uh, I think at the same time, I remember now, maybe my first year of law school, Gene Shea, who used to do the folk music program on Sunday night that I'd listen to on occasion, also had an hour in the morning, if I think it was either 10 or 11 o'clock, on W... You know, I can't remember the, the station that was on, but it was blues. A Philadelphia station. Yes, and mm-hmm. it was straight blues, and it was terrific. And I remember cutting a class or two just so I could listen to that hour of, because uh, I weighed, you know, what do I want to do? <laughs> do I really want to go listen to contracts, or do I want to listen to oh, man. Robert Johnson? So that, that didn't, you know, that, 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 that wasn't a tough choice for me. Uh, but in any event, uh, th- those, I do remember WXPN, and I hope I can remember the name of the station that Gene Shea was on uh, doing that blue show. But both of those things became staples in my listening did, were you hearing and now in college again? I, these these cu- questions are kind of repeating. But did you experience any live music in college or? Uh, very little. I'm trying to think. It was um, well into law school when I actually started to find uh, festivals uh, that that had uh, some bluegrass and old time. Uh, actually, the very first um, bluegrass festival was let's see, 1966. 67, something like that. So before that... When you say the first Bluegrass Festival, where? uh, It was in Wincastle, Virginia. Uh, And um, that was the very first one. And the second one was at Berryville, Virginia. And then our festival followed shortly after that. But those were the first few. Um, You're saying they're the first Bluegrass Festivals at all? At all. At all. Period. Before that... In the country? Yeah. Bluegrass Performers would perform, you know, at country music venues, et cetera, before that. Right. But there was nothing before that at all, okay. or as, as in festival format. Okay. Uh, one thing that made a huge impression on me, and I might be jumping ahead a little bit in time, but not much, was Sunset Park in right. Right, right nearby in Jennersville. I guess they called it West Grove, but it was really Jennersville, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And uh, every Sunday, they would have the best country and bluegrass artists in the world. How did you discover that? Uh, that's a good question, and, and I, I don't know. I'm sure someone told me about it, mm-hmm. but I don't know. And I went out there, and uh, that's where I spent almost every Sunday of my <laughs> that time period from year to year uh, and saw, you know, some of the greats uh, there. It's where I first saw uh, Bill Monroe or Ralph Stanley or, and, uh, and a whole variety of country performers as well. That, that was a huge impact, too, being wow. able to see those people in person sure, and talk with them. I mean, it was a very casual atmosphere, and you could actually talk to people about uh, their music. So you're involved. You're, I mean, you're going to see the music as, as, a, as a, a listener, as an audience member. You're right. going, right? And um, 
And you've tra- did you travel to these other bluegrass festivals to experience them? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. we traveled okay. a lot. And um, my good friend, Shel Sandler, who uh, was one of the founders of the Brandywine Friends of Old Time Music a few years later, mm-hmm. uh, he and I traveled uh, to uh, Tennessee, uh, to Virginia, uh, North Carolina, uh, often to, to hear the music. And this is uh, even pre-festival time, you know, when there were fiddlers' conventions were there uh, a lot. And that, that mm-hmm. contained a lot of the music that we're talking about as well. So I did a lot of traveling, very little around this area. Uh, right. This is pre-internet and pre—anyway, uh, so how are you finding out about these places? Um, well, that's a good question. And um, I, I'm sure it was just word of mouth. I mean, if you meet somebody uh, at a certain location, I mean, as you know, you, you talk and they say, oh, you know about this, you know about that. And I'm sure that was it because there wasn't any kind of central place that you could gain that information. Um, at one of the very early festivals in uh, Berryville, Virginia, uh, there was a fellow there who was handing out leaflets to see whether anybody wanted to subscribe to a magazine, which was about to start called Bluegrass Unlimited. Oh. which is still very prominent to this day. Mm-hmm. And I had a long talk with him. He found out that I was an attorney, invited me down to uh, their first board meeting. And uh, at their board meeting, which was only about 10 or 12 people, Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys played for them. <laughs> whoa, whoa. And, and I incorporated them. And that, that was... Oh, you incorporated uh, Bill Monroe and the Blue No, 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 no. no. Oh, the, the Blue Grass Unlimited. Unlimited. Yeah, okay, right, right. exactly. Well, that's, that's impressive enough, <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Um, but in any event, uh, so that, that's how I became involved with those parts. And that came to mind because of your comment about how you found out about things. So Blue Grass Unlimited became a very important part of that communication. People would, they would list the things that were played, not only in concerts, but festivals and articles about people. And they performed that function for a very long time and still do. And by the way, that, that's always my impre- always always my idea of having a great board meeting. Yeah, the board meetings I went to after that paled in comparison. <laughs> I must tell you, <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Well, we'll do a little we'll do a little background. You mentioned the Brandywine Friends of Old Time Music. Now you can get me straight on this. I see uh, I, in reading up in preparation for this interview, I see where 1972 is listed as the starting date for the Brandywine Friends and for the Bluegrass Festival. Uh, is, did they start at the same time? Well, actually, I think we incorporated the Brandywine Friends in 1971. And, and you're right, the festival started in 1972. And that started because um, you know, o- over time when I had gone to see a lot of these performers, I became friendly with them, uh, particularly Ralph Stanley and somewhat Monroe and a bunch of others. And uh, in 1971, uh, Ralph called me and said, uh, Bill and I, <laughs> I'm thinking, well, oh yeah, sure, of course, uh, we're thinking about starting a festival in the Northeast because there were none at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you be interested in helping out? And, I, and of course I said, <clears throat> let, me, let me think about that for a minute. <laughs> yep. Sure. And, uh, and we, we, so we formed the Brandywine Friends originally for that purpose, to have that, that festival. Um, and uh, we provided the, the venue and we provided the advertisement, et cetera, et cetera, and they provided the talent. We had that kind of an arrangement. Okay. And that's, that's how the Brandywine Friends started, and our very first concert was with Ralph in January of 1971. And then in that whole time period after that, we, we spent trying to arrange for the first Bluegrass Festival, which was in, on Labor Day weekend in 1972. Wow. And in the meantime, we started to think about concerts, and we started having concerts as well. So you... Incorporated the Wine Friends, uh, and so you're, and then you start preparing for the for the Bluegrass Festival. Ralph and uh, Bill Monroe provided the talent, 
and then did, first of all were there contract were there contracts and everything um mostly not mostly it was just a handshake, handshake. Or understanding and of course the only people that we the only direct contact we had with a couple exceptions were directly with them because they contracted the other people or agreed arranged for the other people to come mm-hmm. so we weren't really providing that. Now, we did provide a couple uh, of our own at the time. We had Olabel Reed, Alex and Olabel and the New River Boys and Girls. And mm-hmm. We had an old-time band, Mike Seeger, he called his band that he had together then, the Strange Creek Singers. Uh, <laughs> we had them. Bill was not enthralled with that because it wasn't, quote-unquote, his music, but he, 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 he dealt with it. Yeah, so there really weren't any contracts in the early years. But everybody showed up. Everybody I mean, showed up, yep. Right? Yep. Great. And was it a... Um, is it it's, maybe it's tacky to ask how did you divide up the profits? That's probably a joke, but I mean, how, what was the agreement there? Well, I think it was. Uh, I'm, I'm, this is from memory, but I think it was a ninety ten split. We had ten percent or whatever it was uh, to do what we had to do, and they got the rest of it. And in truth, the first year was was a disaster because it rained awfully hard, and we used a portable stage from the city of Wilmington there, ah. and it was on a hill. It was on part of the KOA campgrounds, Route Forty. Uh, just south of Wilmington, and it, it was muddy, and it was just really unpleasant, and I don't know, a couple hundred people showed up or something like that. Uh, so, you know, it was questionable whether we were going to do it again, but they, they wanted to do it. And in that interim, that year, uh, the uh, Walther family built what became Gloryland Park, which was a, a real facility with a real stage and real seating and a cover and all that in that year. So the second year we actually moved, it was practically across Route 40, in Bear mm-hmm. to Glory mm-hmm. Land Park, where we had it until 1990. This is when Bear was a prairie, as my mother would say. Yeah, that's right. exactly right. That's right. exactly right. And the reason mm-hmm. that we moved in 1990 because it was no longer a prairie. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Glory Land Park did that. Uh, did that function as like Sunset Park did? I mean, did they have a regular schedule of entertainment or not? Well, not at first. It was just the festival. But in in a few years, they decided they wanted to do it, and they tried it on Saturdays because Sunset Park operated on Sunday. And it was mildly successful. Uh, at the time, uh, I was in a bluegrass band called Southbound, and we opened for Stonewall Jackson at Gloryland Park. Wow, wow. <laughs> but anyhow, so they did have some entertainment there from week to week, and I think they did okay. Uh, I think they had Governor Jimmy Davis there one time. He wrote, oh. You Are My Sunshine. You Are My Sunshine, Or right. somebody else wrote it for him, depending upon what the story you believe. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, that wasn't long, long-lived. I think maybe they had a second season, and then I think they stopped. Um, okay. It's tough business. It's a funny way to make a living on the road, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's probably still tough today, but then it was brutal. I mean, you hear, you hear these stories of these, these guys who had to travel hundreds of miles in a, you know, a 10 year old car with a base strapped on their roof. And I mean, it just, and like six of them cramped into, you know, cramped into a little, uh, Nash Rambler or something, you know, it just, it was really tough, really. And tough. hoping they got paid. Yeah, and hoping they got paid. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Is the festival, how's it the same and how's it different from when it started out, just musically speaking? Well, okay. Bill and, and Ralph continued to be the, the main people uh, for three years, and they decided that they weren't making enough money to continue that festival then. They wanted to go back and start festivals at their own home place, Ralph back in McClure, Virginia, and Bill out in Bean Blossom, Indiana. And uh, so we, that was a turning point for us. It was Lester Flatt who stepped up. Uh, and at that point, he had separated from Scruggs. They had gone their own ways. And he played for a, a fee that he wouldn't normally play for at that time in order to help us keep the festival going. 
And that was a turning point. And we had complete control of the festival at that point. We hired all the bands. You know, we did all the arrangements. And, and, um, and Lester was the, the headliner that year. And every year since then, uh, the audience has grown. Uh, I think our, our programming has, uh, has become a little bit more varied uh, here and there. Um, but uh, we've kind of, I think we've pretty much remained true to our, our original uh, purpose, which was to preserve and present traditional American music. And uh, we have branched out at times into other forms beside bluegrass. We've had some country performers there. And we've had some Cajun performers there. This year we're having a Western swing band and a Dixieland band. And, uh, mm-hmm. But we see that all as part of the tentacles, you know, that support the real basic traditional music. Sure, sure. Oh, well, and it, it makes it interesting. I mean, I, I saw Natalie McMaster there. Right, exactly. And the last year, was it a Russian band or a Czech band? Pru- or Kruza. It's been a number of years, though. Oh, was, uh, was it a yeah, couple Pru- years ago? From, and, we've had, and we had a band from Italy, Red Wine. And, yeah, we, we like to do that stuff. That I mean, our, we still have the core, but, but I think it helps the audience, too. It's more variety. and yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so it's developed a little bit that way. But I think basically we're doing kind of the same thing. You know, all our, the sound and all that stuff has been much more sophisticated and better over the years, I think, and the facilities right. becoming better each year. But uh, yeah, we're right. We're kind of sticking to it. And you won an award last year. Wasn't we did. It? We got mm-hmm. the International Bluegrass Music Association's Award for Event of the Year. And uh, you know, in the world at large, that's not a big deal. But in our little corner of the world, it kind of is. Yeah, you know, sure. We had competed with a band with a, 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 a festival from France and one from Canada. And a couple other big festivals in the U.S. to to win that, so we're very proud of that. Great, yeah. I, I can say I've enjoyed it thoroughly. I think just now for about twenty years or so. I don't know how yeah. long I've been coming, but uh, it's great. I remember seeing Allison Krauss. I think at the first one where she was a little tomboy, kind of a yeah. shy little person looking around, like you know, not not sure of herself. That I would say I hate to say that, but at well, all. you're right. She was seventeen when she first played for us. She played for us three times before we couldn't afford her. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I got to tell you this quick story. Sure. Um, there was a band from um, Cape Breton, and um, they were extremely funny. I mean, hysterical performers. And this may have been said in some other form some other time, but the guy got on stage and he said, it is said that you play the Delaware Valley Bluegrass Festival two times in your career, once on the way up and once on the way down. It's good to be back. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, there's some truth in that, especially the, you know the bands that go on to uh, to become really well known and very expensive. Uh, they're kind of out of line. But sometimes over time, you know, they have to come back to their roots a little bit. And that's happened to a few people, right? But you've had some great acts there, undoubtedly. Uh, you know, the Marty Stewart show. You're talking about having country people. Of course, he started in bluegrass, but well, that's uh, an interesting story. If we have time, oh, go Mar- ahead. Mar- Marty, tell first, it. Tell Marty, them all. Marty, <laughs> mm-hmm. Marty first played for us uh, when he was 13 years old. Uh, it was the first bluegrass festival he ever played. And at age 13, he traveled from his home in Mississippi to Nashville. Uh, he, he was playing mandolin, and he was, he was really accomplished. And he had friends there who, who took him in. Um, Lester Flat heard him. And on Labor, just a couple of weeks before Labor Day weekend in 1972, our very first festival. Oh, the first festival. Yeah. He said, uh, you want to go with us and play this weekend? He's a 13-year-old kid, right? Mm-hmm. So he contacted his parents. He got the parents' permission. Is somebody going to look after him and you know, all that kind of stuff? Said, sure. 
And he came up and he played um, mandolin with Bill uh, on that first festival. And we have a magnificent picture of, of him, with, not only with Bill, but with everybody who played. In the early years, they used to have this big finale. And all the bands would come out Sunday afternoon to end it, you know, to do that. It's almost impossible to do today. Right. But uh, they did it then. And it's a great picture of Bill and Ralph Stanley and all these, Jim and Jesse, all these giants of the music. And, and little Marty Stewart, 13 years old. Wow. And, he, and he, I think he's always kept a special relationship with us. And, you know, we've had him a couple times. We're probably going to have him again. And he's, uh, he's, he's, a, he's a great, great musician and a great entertainer. All right, Carl. Then we're going to call it, uh, we're going to call it an interview. All right. So thank you. Well, thank you, Jerry. It's been fun. And every year since then, uh, the audience has grown. Uh, I think our, our programming has, uh, has become a little bit more varied uh, here and there. Um, but uh, we've kind of, I think we've pretty much remained true to our, our original uh, purpose, which was to preserve and present traditional American music. And uh, we have branched out at times into other forms beside bluegrass. We've had some country performers there. And we've had some Cajun performers there. This year we're having a Western swing band and a Dixieland band. And, uh, mm-hmm. But we see that all as part of the tentacles, you know, that support the real basic traditional music. Sure, sure. Oh, well, and it, it makes it interesting. I mean, I, I saw Natalie McMaster there. Right, exactly. And the last year, was it a Russian band or a Czech band? Or Karuza. It's been a number of years, though. Oh, was, oh, was it yeah, a couple yeah, years Karuza ago? From, and, we had, and we had a band from Italy, Red Wine. And, yeah, we, we like to do that stuff. I, that I mean, our, we still have the core, but, but I think it helps the audience, too. It's more variety. and yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so it's developed a little bit that way. But I think basically we're doing kind of the same thing. You know, all our, the sound and all that stuff has been much more sophisticated and better over the years, I think, and the right. facilities becoming better each year. But uh, yeah, we're right. We're kind of sticking to it. And you won an award last year, wasn't we it? We did. We got mm-hmm. the International Bluegrass Music Association's Award for Event of the Year. And, uh, you know, the world at large, that's not a big deal, but in our little corner of the world, it kind of is. Yeah, you know, sure. We, we had competed with a band with a, 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 a festival from France and one from Canada and a couple other big festivals in the U.S. to, to win that. So we're very proud of that. Great. Yeah. Very good. I, I can say I've enjoyed it thoroughly, I think, just now for about 20 years or so. I don't know how yeah. long I've been coming, but uh, uh, it's great. I remember seeing Allison Krauss, I think, at the first one where she was a little tomboy, kind of a yeah. shy little person looking around, like, you know, not – not sure of herself that I would say, I hate to say that, but at well, all. you're right. She was 17 when she first played for us. She played for us three times before we couldn't afford her. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I, I, I got to tell you this quick story. Sure. Um, there was a band from um, Cape Breton and um, they were extremely funny. I mean, hysterical performers. And this may have been said in some other form some other time, but the guy got on stage and he said, it is said that you play the Delaware Valley Bluegrass Festival two times in your career, once on the way up and once on the way down. It's good to be back. <laughs> but you know, there's some truth in that, especially the, you know, the bands that go on to, uh, to become really well-known and very expensive. Uh, they're kind of out of line. But sometimes over time, you know, they have to come back to their roots a little bit. And that's happened to a few people. Right. Well, one, I heard one booker say one time that uh, – the bands on the way up know it, and the bands on the way down don't know it. Yeah. And that was the problem with book, trying to book shows. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you've had some great acts there, und- undoubtedly. Uh, you know, the Marty Stewart show, you're talking about having country people. Of course, he started in bluegrass, but 
Well, that's uh, an interesting story if we have time. Oh, go Mar- ahead. Mar- Marty Tell first, it. Tell Marty, them all. Marty, <laughs> mm-hmm. Marty first played for us uh, when he was 13 years old. Uh, it was the first bluegrass festival he ever played. And at age 13, he traveled from his home in Mississippi to Nashville. Uh, he, he was playing mandolin, and he was, he was really accomplished. And he had friends there who, who took him in. Uh, Lester Flat heard him. And on just a couple weeks before Labor Day weekend in 1972, our very first festival. Oh, the first festival. Yeah. He said, uh, you want to go with us and play this weekend? He's a 13-year-old kid, right? Mm-hmm. So he contacted his parents. He got the parents' permission. Uh, somebody going to look after him and you know, all that kind of stuff. Said, sure. And he came up and he played um, mandolin with Bill uh, on that first festival. And we have a magnificent picture of, of him, with, not only with Bill, but with everybody who played. In the early years, they used to have this big finale. And all the bands would come out Sunday afternoon to end it, you know, to do that. It's almost impossible to do today. Right. But uh, they did it then. And it's a great picture of Bill and Ralph Stanley and all these, Jim and Jesse, all these giants of the music. And, and little Marty Stewart, 13 years old. Wow. And, and, he, and he, I think he's always kept a special relationship with us. And, you know, we've had him a couple times. We're probably going to have him again. And he's... Uh, He's he's a, he's a great great musician and a great entertainer. Well, I yeah. saw him. I saw him when he returned the favor to Ryan Paisley. Yes, a couple of years ago, whenever that was, and uh, that was a great moment too. And that that is why it made an even bigger impression on us because it almost repeated. You know, and he was he was the same age that exactly the same age that Marty was when he played that stage when he was thirteen years old. Wow. Yeah. Let, let's explain that the Paisleys are a local, right? A local family that has has had a, a bluegrass band in one form or another for a long time. Yes. And cu- currently it's Danny Paisley and Ryan's his son. Mm-hmm. And so Ryan was just kind of getting into the band at that time. Maybe he had been on stage with them, I mean, for a year or two or so. I'm not yeah. sure exactly, but, and Marty Stewart was told, I guess, by somebody that there's this hot shot kid playing mandolin. Yeah. And just as a little aside, I think uh, my, my interest in uh, this music was really developed by and encouraged by the fact that we have just in this area, a lot of really fine bluegrass musicians and old time people. Uh, Bob Paisley played at one time with Ted Lundy and Ted Lundy and the Southern Mountain Boys. And they were among the best in the country, no question. And a lot of those families, including Ola Bill Reed and the Reeds and the Campbells and the Paisleys and the Lundys and more and more, moved up this way during the Depression to find work. And they settled in like southwestern Pennsylvania, almost from Lancaster down to this area toward Baltimore to get work. And so that music was carried with them. And my exposure to that uh, at the time when I was still in school or just out of school uh, really made an impression on me. And, and I think I, I don't think that I'd have the knowledge or the interest that I have now without having experienced that. Wow. It's a great educator for, for history and economics and everything else. Yep. Oh, that Soul music traces the same arc. You know, right. Everybody goes up to Detroit, to Chicago, uh, to you know, Gary, Indiana. Everybody goes up to get work, right. you know, and... Everything else follows from that, yeah, you know. Exactly. Great. Well, that's great. Well, um, so let's see. So we've we've so the Bluegrass Festival today. Uh, apparently, guys, when it started, it was a one day affair, and then it's grown in now. It's a three day affair, uh, and um, and you're in New Jersey. We've covered all that. Okay, good. Let's the friends. Um, so the friends continue. Just the the main function of the friends is is to bring up upcoming acts or some established acts and stuff, and 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 present them in in small venues around. 
Right. The, the, De- the Delaware Valley. Concerts and in uh, and, and in the festival. That's right. Right. And we've done things like uh, artists in schools over time. We had John Jackson, the great blues player from the Piedmont area of North Carolina, mm-hmm. come up and spend some time. We've had uh, uh, Dewey Balfa, who's one of the great <coughs> Cajun musicians of all time, come up and spend a week. Did some concerts for us. Had a residency at the University of Delaware. We did that and this is quite a few years ago now. Mm-hmm. But that's the kind of thing we like to do. Wow. Great. Great. Um, let's talk about the Brandywine uh, Mountain Music Festival, too. Am I getting that right? Uh, yes. Okay. Just to make a note of that, how that began. Okay. And, and uh, that was in direct response to Mr. Monroe's decision that he didn't want too many people that weren't playing his music. Because we wanted originally to get some old-time music uh, in the Bluegrass Festival. And he said, no, no. I don't, you his know. music being pure Bluegrass. Pure Bluegrass. Pure bluegrass. Uh, maybe we should explain... Bill Monroe's importance. Why don't we take a second and do that? Okay. Um, there, there are very few people, I think, that you can identify as being maybe inventor or creator. It's, quite, it's just not the right word. But being the catalyst for inventing and starting an entire form of music. In the world, how many are there, you know? But he's one. I mean, he really coalesced everything into a form that you can call bluegrass now. I mean, there were, there were a lot of precursors that did uh, uh, precursors who, who did things that were very similar. The banjo style was not necessarily completely developed by Earl Scruggs, but he, he, he put it in a format that, that was the, the As a member template of that band. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So Monroe is the one who really started this music. He and his brother Charlie, Charlie played um, a form of old-time music before that. His mandolin style was a little bit different once he got this band together. But Bill Monroe essentially started bluegrass in the uh, mid-1940s. And uh, from that time out, maybe 15, 20 years, most of the people who had successful bluegrass bands at one time or another played with Bill Monroe. Um, one of the Stanleys, Carter Stanley, played there. Jimmy Martin played there. I mean, they're just he was like the school that produced all of these people. It's mm-hmm. kind of remarkable yeah. in re- retrospect. But yeah, he was the fountainhead. No Good. question. Good. But so to get back to the Mountain Music Festival, he wanted, wanted people that, that hewed to that line of music. Right, right? pretty close. Right. But, and we wanted to do other stuff. We, we wanted to get some of these first-generation performers from, from the mountains, some, some blues people, some Cajun people, et cetera, et cetera. So it was Mike Seeger who really helped us start the Brandywine Mountain Music Convention. And how's Mike related to the Seeger family? Uh, he's Pete's half-brother. Okay. Uh, and uh, so we got together um, – in 72, 73, something like that, to start planning this. And the first Brandywine Mountain Music Convention was 1974 and continued till 1993. That's right. We did 20 years, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that festival was concentrating on all of these people uh, who almost no one would know in the general public. But there were people who lived in the mountains who had these incredible uh, uh, ability to play this this raw music, you know, this this really substantive music. But they were known widely by those few people who studied that, and and who never got a chance to see them. And we brought them up year after year. We had uh, a different theme each year. We would do the music of Tennessee, the music of North Carolina, the Cajun music, we did French music of North America. We did once, you know, that kind of stuff. Hmm. We even did one on comedy. Something called Philosophers, Something, and Liars. And we, and <laughs> I we, wish I had seen oh, that one. it was one. wonderful. Yeah, it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. We had Pinkerton, Bowden. Uh, we had um, 
let's see, who else did we have? We had Grandpa Jones. We had uh, Utah Phillips. I don't know, all these people who did comedy stuff. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, I, that, that was, the, that was the, the theme of that, was to, to get that, that kind of music to... And, and we had a huge following. Uh, it, it was kind of in the middle of and just after the folk music scare. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so we had a lot of the people who were interested in that, that alternative music, you know, that rootsy music. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty much the audience for that. You know, we had very different from the bluegrass audience, actually. And uh, that's what propelled that for a long time. Uh, but and yeah, we- that, that, was, uh, that was an interesting. And we, and we produced records uh, the first 10 years, and then we did a 10-year retrospective and a 20-year retrospective of the Brandywine Mountain Music Convention. It's really providing a service there. Well, it's it's nice now. There are a lot of young people involved in old time music now. A lot. Yeah. And and it is really interesting and and rewarding for us to hear uh, people who say, "Oh yeah, we we went to Brandywine. Brandywine's where we learned all this stuff. Didn't know anything about this music before Brandywine." So it, in in that community, I think it played a fairly important role. Great. And where where would you have that at venues? We started in Concordville, Pennsylvania, and we moved eventually to. Um, just outside of Fair Hill, Maryland, at Bob Jackson's farm. And I uh, got, we were there for a long time until the, um, the rains just swept us away for a couple of years. And it was impossible. We, it was a beautiful little mountainside with trees, and, but it was raw land. And we built a stage there. And uh-huh. very difficult to do in bad weather. We had a couple of years in a row. So we moved it the last couple of years actually over to Gloryland Park. Or, excuse me, over to the Salem County Fairgrounds where we have the Bluegrass Festival. Mm-hmm. And it really wasn't the right setting for that. Uh, but it had kind of run its course in other ways as well. A lot of the people who used to come out there, you know, with their uh, their campers and their the stuff, at this point had uh, two or three children and were dri- driving station wagons. It just it was a different sure. time, a different feel. Sure, yeah. sure. I, ca- I think I can remember some groups that like, might have been holdovers from that. Uh, an act, a, a woman who mainly just like stomped her feet and... And sang it, and sang really loudly, but, but totally without instruments. But did like, um, I remember people doing it on Prospect Avenue, actually in Newark. But yeah, they're more like hollers, I guess. Yeah, or, uh, yeah. There is. I, I think we may have had one or two of those over time. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. That that is an old uh, form. Right. Just trying to make it clear here who uh, what, what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Great. All right. Let's see. How about so? Let's go back to your show. All, all right. right. And. Um, your radio show, which is called Fire in the Mountain. So during while you're doing all that stuff, what happens? Well, uh, for some reason, somebody at the University of Delaware knew that I had a significant collection. And I was collecting this music uh, for all the time we've been talking about. And it mostly was built around bluegrass and old time and some traditional country stuff. And one of the, one of the students who was doing a show here at the university contacted me and said, can we borrow some records at the time, of course, and I said, sure. So they would come out from time to time and borrow some albums and give it to them. And, uh, Who was point, that student? Do you mind? I'm sorry. Oh, jeez. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure that I can remember the name. Okay. Uh, there were a couple, actually. Um, That's... I, I, I can't. But in any event. Um, sure. What? what uh, and so after a time, they said, well, why don't you come down and, and do the show? And I said, I don't, I don't really have time. I mean, at the time I was, you know, on the bench and I was doing all the brand new one friend stuff and, you know. And yeah, yeah. Uh, so they kept after me, kept after me. And, and so finally I said, look, okay, here's what I'll do. If there's a student with me so that I can do it whenever I want and then not come down when I don't want to and you can take over, et cetera, et cetera, then I'll, I'll give it a try. So I did. And of course I loved it. 
and it just uh, mm-hmm. became real, you know, part of what I wanted to do. And that was uh, 1977 when that started. Great, 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 great. And you've been on Saturdays all the time? Yep. Yeah? Yeah. Time slot changed a little bit from time to time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How's the, has, how, has, the cha- has the show been the, pretty much the same the whole way through, or have you changed it any? Or uh... I think pretty much the same. I, I think I was one of the first shows to combine the forms of music that I do. There's some that do it now, but uh, up to that point, there were a lot of bluegrass shows, not a lot, some bluegrass shows, some country shows. But, but my purpose was to, to make it a, a wider view. I do some bluegrass, I do some traditional country, I do some old time, and I try to mix together to have some kind of cohesion to it. Uh, right. Sometimes successful, sometimes not. But um, that, that's, that's kind of the format, and I've kind of stuck to that format over time. I'm glad you do. I, you know, I think I listened to the Bluegrass Show, for instance, on Sirius XM, and which is very well done. I mean, the, well, the various programs they have on there are well done. But you know, sometimes you're looking for. I mean, maybe it's because I'm you, you've trained me or something over the years, but I'm kind of waiting for a change of pace sometimes. Yeah, I mean, well, that, that's know. that's right, and I and I feel exactly the same way, which is why I do it that way. And and I, unfortunately, some other people seem to enjoy it too. Oh. You know, plus, the reason that I liked it also was such great people who who were on this station, like this guy Jerry Grant. Jerry, hear him? <laughs> uh, but they're, they're well, no, the, we met characters here. Yeah. Oh yeah, and really, really fascinating people, and it's it's a great place to to to, to be around. Mm-hmm. How about talk about a little bit more about your band? So you also played in bands for a while. Yeah, uh, the the one that was most quote unquote successful, I think, was uh, Southbound. And uh, we were together for a few few years, um, but it consisted of uh, Joe Haftel, who played with Ted Lundy's band at one time, a fellow by the name of Troy Spencer, who unfortunately passed away a number of years ago, uh, who was a banjo player who uh, had written a number of songs that are still performed by contemporary bluegrass people today, really fine musician, a fellow by the name of Tom Milet, who's really big now in the old time community, lives down in North Carolina, Brian Duffy, great musician from over in Jersey. And we had an incredible singer who is still singing today, Robin Neville Stewart, Regan, as we called her at the time. Oh, oh, really? Yeah, and she's, I think she's making a comeback now, and she's, uh, you know, and she's a wonderful singer. And she had, uh, and, and I, I don't remember, I think that I met her when Channel 2, you remember Rollins used to have this Rollins Vision thing or whatever it was called, and Pat Rollins did a um, cable vision show. You know, which they were required to do at the time. You mean you a, new, to, a, a new local, show? No, or, no, no. A, oh, a, a local show. Oh, I see. That was live. Right. Okay. And uh, they used to have Ted Lundy would go on there and stuff, and and uh, Reagan came down there, and I forget what it was, and I thought, boy, that'd be good. And there were very few, if any, lead female singers of bluegrass at the time, and um, you know, she had all kinds of reservations about it and stuff, but because she had been a pretty much a folk singer, beautiful voice. Right. Right. And, and I think she really, it, it was really a great experience for everybody. So that was a that was a fun band, and um, and one time we actually took a mini tour, played up at the Town Crier, which is like one of the the great folk uh, venues in New England. Uh, actually, it was in uh, Poughkeepsie, New York, I think is where it was. Mm-hmm. And we played a few things along the way, that kind of stuff. But that was that was a fun experience. Our, actually, our paths crossed back then, although un, unbeknownst to either one of us. But I used to. <laughs> When I graduated from college, I didn't even graduate really, but just I started in the working world and I was making pizzas and cheesesteaks and stuff. And I used to work one of the many places I worked. It was they had, they had a common ownership was uh, Mr. Pizza on Chestnut Hill Road, um, 
where you guys played in the back. That's right. I mean, I, I, you know, I think we established that one time many years ago. But yeah. we used to, and I'll, I'll confess totally, I was callow youth of you know twenty three or four or whatever, and and well, we were all that. The, we had the jukebox out front where we actually made the food and stuff, and then sent it to the back room. And I think we we're listening to Iron Man or you know Iron Man by Black Sabbath or something on the front, which I was saying, get me away from this group. <laughs> and then I'm thinking, oh God, they got bluegrass in the back room. What am I going to do? You know, I was you know anyway. No offense, <laughs> yes. I, you know, but. Uh, I can remember, but you drew you drew a big crowd there. I mean, they were big yeah, nights. I think, I think we did we did okay, and we also played on Sunday nights. Like, I just can't believe this now. We started like at nine thirty or ten o'clock at Grendel's Lair on South Street in Philadelphia. Oh, I mean, and I was working for. I, I just I, I can't imagine how I did that or how we did that, but yeah, <laughs> we did. Uh, we played up there for several months, actually. If you can skip classes in uh, law school, Carl, <laughs> you're a better man than I. You can do pretty much anything. Um, well. Uh, just anything else you want to talk about? I mean, you know. No, it's, this is a. I don't. I don't think people realize what a what a, a great station this is beyond what the wonderful stuff they can hear on the air because of the people involved here, because of the commitment they have to the music. Uh, it, I think it's if you're deeply involved in music, I think you really have a, a lot of um, meeting other people with the same kind of commitment in various other forms of music is significant. I mean, it makes you feel very comfortable. You share a lot and it's a really great place to be. So, you know, when we go on air and we talk about how good this station is, there may be a lot more behind it than people really think. <laughs> well, so. it, right. I, th- and I think they picked that up. You know, radio is still, here we are looking across at each other from a, four feet away from each other or something. I mean, it's an intimate, it's still yes. an intimate uh, medium. Right. It's been said many times, but it's absolutely true. Right. And I've, you know, I've had people call me up and tell me, incredibly intimate things and stuff you know spurred on by the music that i'm playing or something it's yeah. like whoa you are really listening you yeah. know sometimes you wonder is anybody listening out there yeah. yes they yeah. are right and uh one thing i wanted to say also was that uh when you talk about meeting monroe and and ralph stanley and i'm thinking god the equivalent for me would be like meeting ray charles and sam cook or something you know what <laughs> i mean people who got something going not even because monroe of course yeah, yeah. basically invented the music but talk about people who uh, you know develop something from scratch and yeah. it's like but you you were very familiar with them i mean that's right that's that's interesting yeah. you know they yeah. and they had confidence in you to to carry on with their enterprise you know what i mean what am i trying to say do you know what i mean it, i do know what you mean you know yeah, right I know, yeah, yeah i know that, exactly what you mean that's great it's yeah. great all right, Carl. Then we're going to call it. Uh, we're going to call it an interview. All right. So, thank you. Well, thank you, Jerry. It's been fun. Yes. Very good.